So here we are in Joshua 3. Uh, last week, we started uh, into a two-part sermon uh, looking at this story. And just a quick recap of the story. Joshua tells the people at the beginning of chapter 3, in three days, you're going to see the ark of the covenant of the Lord carried by the priest. And when you see it, you're to, you're to consecrate yourselves, and then you are to follow the ark. And it's through this, this event that, that God says that he is going to exalt Joshua as the new leader of Israel who has come to replace Moses. And the people will know that Joshua is, in fact, God's chosen leader. So the priests, as Mike had read, are going to carry the ark to the river Jordan. And when they step in the waters, the waters of the river will part and separate. And they will walk over on dry ground. Last Sunday, we began to see that this was more than a historical story, but a spiritual story about God. What's happening in, in the context of where Israel's at as a nation? We find that God is, is revealing the kind of God he is to his people so that they're learning to trust him even more as they move forward in this conquest of the land. And we find that God doesn't change just as God's actions and characters prove to Israel that they could trust him. Today, his actions and character prove that we can trust him in our journey into the eternal land. If you were here last week, this was our big picture idea that we ended up breaking down into five points. We looked at the first two last week. The God of all the earth shows grace to his people and will faithfully lead them to the land that he has promised. Should be up there on the slide. Okay, screen on the back's not in sync. So that's all right. I'm just going to go with it and assume that you have it. The God of all the earth showed grace to his people and will faithfully lead them to the land he has promised. And we started out looking at five truths that, about God that will increase your trust in him. The first of those two truths we looked at last week, and I'll briefly recap, but if you want any more, you can go online and listen to that sermon. Number one, God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. A couple times in the, in the text, it says he is the Lord of all the earth and everything that he does is right and good. He's the living God and it's right to do with the land whatever he chooses, which is going to be to drive out the people in verse number 10 and to give the land over to Israel. And this plan is not an accident, but is the unfolding of the promise that he gave to Abraham many years before. And he will see it come to pass. God is sovereign. But we also looked at the second point, that God is gracious. What was about to happen, Israel was totally undeserving of. They had already rejected. They had their chance to follow God under the leadership of Moses. When God gave the law to Moses and said, follow this law and you will be blessed, they rejected that law and God exiled them to the wilderness for 40 years. But thankfully, there's salvation from the wilderness. And the promise of the land was based not on their obedience, but on God's gracious love to them. 
And God in his grace would see that they would be taken from the wilderness and brought into this land. And God gives them another chance to reaffirm their willingness to follow the law that God had given to Moses. And this is how the, really, when you pick up at this point in the chapter, in chapter number three, this is how the story was supposed to progress after God delivered them from Egypt. And isn't it just amazing? It amazes me that even through our sin, God is still at work and our sin doesn't alter the plan of God. There may be a delay, but it's always a purposeful delay and God is still at work even through our sin. He graciously works through our sin to bring about his purposes. And so we, like the people of Israel, are just recipients of grace, God's grace. That's it. Which is important because of the third truth that we're going to look at about God here this morning. Number three in our two-part series, number one this morning, God is holy. God is holy. You'll notice the words of verses three to five. In verse number three, it says, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, that's about 3,000 feet, in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God is holy. Several things in these verses reveal to us this truth that God is a holy God. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be without sin. It means to be set apart, to be separate from. So God's holiness, as we think about who God is, His holiness is so important to His character. Sometimes people get in debates. What's the most important characteristic of God or his most important attribute? They're all equally important. To remove one would make him no longer God. But yet his holiness is so important that he is without sin. He is separate from his creation. And a couple of places in these verses where this is pointed out, in verse number three that I read, you'll notice who is carrying the ark. It is the Levitical priests. So the Ark of the Covenant, this is God's, the covenant that God made with the people through Moses. And the Ark represented the presence of God. We touched on that last week. But when the people saw the Ark, it was a reminder that God was in their midst. He was present with them. It wasn't a good luck charm, although there's another story later on that they will kind of use it as a good luck charm and bring it into battle, and that will end in disaster No, it was a picture both of God's presence that he has come to them and his holiness that he was separate from them. It's doing two things. And and this is where the Levitical priest, this, this comes in. God's instructions were that only the priest could carry the ark. So yes, God was present among them and yet he was separate from them because not just anyone could come and pick the ark up and start carrying it. In fact, Yuza finds that out the hard way when he touches the ark and dies. Only the priest could carry the ark. God can have no fellowship with sin. The common person not permitted to touch the ark, to carry the ark. Sorry, no one was permitted to touch it. 
They couldn't, common person couldn't even carry it. It was only the priests who went through the ceremonial cleansings who could carry the ark. And here's how they would carry it. I have a picture here. This is a replica. I mean, no, nobody knows exactly. But you see there in this picture, there, there's these poles that would go through the rings on the side. And so this is how the priests would carry the ark. They would carry it by these poles so as not to touch it. And this all demonstrated that God was separate from his people. Sin and God like oil and water. They do not mix. They can never mix. And to carry the ark, he set certain people aside to do this special task. God is holy. Which is, this is why the, the Joshua commands the people, now in verse number 5, consecrate yourself. God has chosen his people and called them out among all other nations. He could have called out anybody, but he calls out Israel And what did he call them out to be and to do? To be distinct. To be separate from those nations around them. Part of the judgment that God was going to bring to the nations in verse number 10 was because of their wickedness and they were to completely destroy them because God wanted them to be untainted with the influence of the nations around them. They were to be distinct. God was in the process now of making them holy so that they would follow his word, that they would live according to his rule. He was setting them apart. When you think about the 40 years in the wilderness, certainly part of God's judgment for disobedience, but I think it's also part of God's training them to, to live in complete dependence on Him. When you're in the wilderness, where are you getting food? Where are you getting your drink? We know the manna and the water at times that flowed from the rock. God was their provider, and they were learning in this 40 years to be dependent on him. they, They were no longer in Egypt, but they were nomads in the wilderness. And the more they are learning all that time whose people they really are, and God is showing them, you are my people. I've set you apart. Now, consecrate yourselves. Now, for the people of Israel, this would have meant ceremonial washings and cleansings, uh, that there would be no contact with death or disease that could defile you. You were to put away your idols. They were to live out the reality of who they were as God's people. That's the idea of consecrate. You set yourself apart. You have been set apart by God. Now act on that and live in light of the way that you were called to live. If you are my people, demonstrate that in how you live and set yourself apart. And notice verse 5. When you do that, you will see God's power at work among you. Today, today God is still holy He is still separate from sin. And he's still calling a people out to himself, but only holy people can live in relationship with him. Only holy people will gain the promised land and see the the wonders that the Lord has and his great power. So we ask, well, where does that leave us as sinners? Because we have all sinned. We are not born holy. 
Do we need to start the ceremonial cleansings of the law again? Do we need to somehow find the ark? Some have tried. The ark of the covenant, that is. And thankfully, the answer is no, because God has come to us in the most amazing of ways. What was the ark picturing? It's his presence and his holiness, yet he became like us. He was born of a virgin and Jesus lived as we lived, except he remained totally holy, totally sinful. And his fellowship with God was perfect until the moment that he hung on the cross. And in that moment, he bore the sins of the world. And there, as he carried our sin, God the Father turned his presence from God the Son And the sky went dark and Jesus felt the agony of separation from his Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness, the holiness of God. So as righteous people who are made righteous through Jesus, We are called to live as righteous. We are called right now to consecrate ourselves. Church, this is your call as individuals and as a a corporate body to help one another in this call. To consecrate ourselves. Your spiritual life is not a personal journey. It's a corporate journey. Look at verse number 5. Who is Joshua speaking to? Is he speaking to one guy or one lady? No, he said to the people. We're in this together. So as a church, our consecration to the Lord will only go as far as our commitment to each other. If all you're concerned about is yourself, we're going to fall short As a church, we need every member of the body working together to see that his church, his people, are living in a way that is holy and consecrated unto the Lord. You need the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you, and they need you. One final thought here before we move on to the next truth about God. Listen, God God is a gracious God who doesn't give us what we deserve. But from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, we see this truth. And here's this truth that I want us to just think about for a moment. God will withhold his power when people hold on to their sin. God will withhold his power when people hold on to their sin. It doesn't mean that he's not at work. But when they consecrate themselves, he says, then you will see the wonders that I will do. Christian, perhaps today you struggle to see the power of God in your life. Your prayers feels hindered. Your joy feels depleted. Your your motivation to live perhaps is waning. Could it be that you are not living consecrated unto the Lord? That you're harboring sin, and maybe you think, look, it's just one little area, but God wants all of you. He wants you to fully surrender to Him, to consecrate yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. 
Look, you and I will never be sinless this side of heaven, but, but God isn't looking for per- perfection. He is looking for progress. So can I ask you this morning, has your life changed to look more like Jesus from January 1st to October 22nd this year? You look more like your Savior in the 10 months of this year than you did last year. Are you actively striving to live consecrated to Him? Leviticus 20 and verse number 6. You are to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. This is our call as a Christian. God is holy, therefore be holy. So God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is holy. Number four, fourth truth about God. God is shepherd. We see this in verses 3 and 6 and 11 and 14. And there's many verses throughout Scripture that give the picture that God is a shepherd for His people. And what do shepherds do? They lead their sheep. They lead their sheep from the front. I'm not a, I'm not a sheep farmer. I don't know if anybody else is. So I have to read about these things. What are sheep like? Well, sheep have great vision. Sheep have sharp eyes, and it's clear who their vision is to be focused on. They're to follow the shepherd. Notice in verse number three, when you see the ark, the presence of God, you want to do what? You are to follow it. The indication is the ark is out in front. Verse number six, take the Take up the ark and pass on before the people. Verse 11 says the same thing. The ark is passing over before you. Verse 14, the priests are carrying the ark before the people. So the ark is out in front. God is out in front leading his people. And in verse number 4, it actually gives them some more uh, instruction, not just lead and follow out in front, but he says, look, I want there to be a distance of about 3,000 feet between the ark and the people. Why would that be the case? Well, some have said, well, because, you know, we're supposed to be separate from the ark and, and, and its holiness. Well, yeah, but, that, but what does the verse say? The verse gives us the reason, in order that you may know the way that you shall go for you have not passed this way before. You see, God wants each person, each of the people of Israel to be able to see the ark so they know exactly who they're following. They aren't just following a crowd, but their eyes are focused on the shepherd, the God who is leading the way, and he's leading his people in a very visible way so the sheep can see it. But one of the other things we know about sheep they can hear the call of the shepherd in a unique way. Shepherds have a distinct call for their sheep, and when they make that call, the sheep come and, and they hear, which we are reminded of in, in verse number 9. And we used this, this a bunch last week, but notice again verse number 9. Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. They both saw God as shepherd and they would hear God leading them as their shepherd, and God was leading them into enemy territory. What do sheep normally do when they are confronted with an enemy? You run. They run away. Sheep aren't known for their defensive abilities. They're innocent. But the shepherd stood between them and their enemy, demonstrating that not only was he leading them, 
but he was protecting them. There was a distance here that he would fight their battle for them. He's going to be the first to confront danger. He's going to guide them. Notice at the end of verse number four, they have not passed this way before. So it's all new to them. The wilderness they're comfortable with. They've been wandering in the wilderness for for many years. They're comfortable there, but now they're going into a a new journey. And and question, sure, what waits for us on the other side? What trials are going to come? What enemies are are we going to face? All these questions they would be thinking and raising up in their mind. But what does the shepherd do for his sheep? He cares for them. He leads them into the land where they're going to receive nourishment, care, protection, and rest. Remember the goal of all of this? We looked at this in chapter 1, verse 13. It wasn't just to get a land, but that land was going to provide rest for God's people. God is leading them to a place of rest. Good shepherds bring rest to their sheep. Kids, maybe some adults, I don't know. It's nighttime, and you have to go down into the basement or you have to go upstairs by yourself. Everybody else is downstairs and it's dark. It gets, anybody get afraid of the dark? Go ahead, you can raise your hand. Okay, few people. M- many adults are afraid of the dark. You tell your parents that you're scared. And what do your parents say? There's nothing to be scared about. Whew. All right, let me go up there. Let me go down to the basement. No, that's not the way that we think. That's not going to work. But what does work? What works is when one of your parents or your unsuspecting sibling that's going to get it, when they go first and they turn on the light and they demonstrate there's nothing lurking out there to get you. That's what will work. Well, God has not stopped shepherding his people. And he goes on before his people to show them there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to worry about. I will lead the way. And Jesus, the good shepherd who has given his life for his sheep, John chapter 10, is leading our way. Can I ask, do you see him this morning? Are your eyes focused on Jesus, the shepherd, leading the way? It's the only way you'll get to the the eternal promised land, eternal life, heaven. It's by fixing your eyes on Jesus and following him. Over and over in Jesus' life and ministry, he calls people to follow him. And I started that journey when I was 15 years old. It was October 3rd, 1996, so 27 years ago to this month, I answered the call to follow Jesus, heard the gospel, grew up in church, Heard the gospel, though, and for the first time realized, you know what, I think I'm just going through the motions. I need to repent and turn from my sin and turn and follow Jesus. But yet, the longer that I was in the church, the more it was like I was just kind of packed into a herd of sheep. And I was, I was moving in a direction, but I lost sight of the shepherd. I had let the allures of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life capture my focus. Maybe at times I was even starting to follow other sheep who had also wandered and drifted off. But God in his grace put a distance between me and him and allowed me once again to see 
the shepherd, to see who it is that I need to be following. Who are you following today? Maybe here's a couple questions if I could ask you that maybe would help determine that. What occupies your unhurried thoughts? When work is over, when you have a moment to think, what, what, what are the things that flood your mind? May you say, well, I don't, I don't really have any unhurried thoughts. Well, that could be another indicator that you're running after the wrong thing. What motivates you in life? Do you spend any time alone with God in, in the word and prayer? And if you do, is it a delight? Do you enjoy that time with the Lord? Do you come here to worship with the mentality of, of thinking about all the things that you need to do? Or do you come thinking about the God that you are to worship and the people that you are to love? I don't know where you're at this morning, but it's worth the time to stop and to make sure you are following the shepherd, not just following a crowd. Maybe you say, Dennis, I, I know I'm not following Jesus but I'm afraid to take that step. And look, fear is a real thing, but don't let your emotions deceive you. There is only one shepherd that will lead you to eternal life. And when you follow him, he will lead you to places that you have not passed before. He will lead you into hard things, into trials, into enemy territory, into, into situations that you, you never thought that you could ever handle but as his sheep, your focus needs to be not all the ends of that thing, but those first three words, he will lead. He will lead. And we don't know what's up the stairs or in the basement, but we know that everything that we will go through, he has already gone through. He has already walked that road, including death. So do not fear, only believe. We need to keep moving. God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is holy. God is shepherd. Number five, our last point, God is true. God is true. You see, God's people have been literally waiting for decades, 40 years for God's promise to come true. And now it's about to happen. God is going to remain true to the promise that he gave to his people through Abraham. God has always been and will always be faithful to his people. He's going to be with his people to see them into the land. Here's the land, just in case we forget about the map. I've shown this before, uh, back when we were looking at chapter uh, oh, I don't remember when I showed it. But anyway, uh, you see where it says uh, Benjamin, kind of right toward, in the center towards the bottom is the city of Jericho. So the people are just on the other side, looking into the land, waiting for this promise to come to pass, that they're going to come into the land. And in verse number seven, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So he promises Joshua, Joshua, I'm going to be with you. And as he is with Joshua, he is with his people. As the Lord is with his leader, 
His people experience the benefits of that presence as well. And now, in order to remain true to his promises, God is going to have to do something that's a miracle. He's going to have to show his awesome power, which is, which is what verses 12 through 6 describe. Notice verse number 12, Now therefore take twelve men from the twelve tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest, bearing the ark of the covenant of uh, sorry, the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. This is the, the flood season at harvest time. Verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a, very, uh, in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside there, Sarathan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Okay, you get all that? The, the, the priests are carrying the ark. By those poles, they go down to the banks of the Jordan, which at this time, we're told, is the flood season. And during that season, uh, this is when the water would be the deepest and fastest. So it could be anywhere from 9 to 12 feet deep and 20 to 30 yards wide, okay? About 100, 100 feet wide. A couple people could maybe swim over this, but you're not going to get a whole army across here. You're not going to get a whole people with all of their possessions across here. And it's, and it's really, side note, most likely, I know, I know Rahab talks about Jericho as the, the hearts of the people melt, but they probably felt pretty secure knowing that, well, the Jordan's at its highest stage. Nobody's crossing this river. Okay, we're, we're probably pretty safe right now. But God had other plans, didn't he? Picture the scene. Picture the scene that, that was certainly reported back to Jericho, okay? Maybe they had some, maybe some people from Jericho were bathing in the Jordan and they lathered up. They got their soap all in their eyes and then the water cut off. That's, that's not a fun way. Uh, no, I, there were no doubt spies that were watching what was going on. They were observing what was happening and they would have told the people of Jericho, which would have probably caused their hearts to melt even more. Look, we were, we were there watching and the waters just parted. And the people started to cross on dry ground. And for the people of Israel, they're doing the very same thing. We talked about this being like a, an image, a, a, a second exodus for the people when you overlay what's happening in Joshua 1 through 3 through the first exodus, the people of, of God are once again walking over parted waters just like they did in the Red Sea. God is leading the way. He is the first into the water as their shepherd. But notice in verse 17, it tells us also, now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So God as shepherd was the first to lead his people. But in verse 17, it tells us that he is also the last out of the water. 
It wasn't, follow me, and then I'm going to exit on the other side, so you're going to be thinking, I hope I make it through before this water comes back down. No, God, in the presence of the ark, is there in the midst of the waters. God puts himself in harm's way, and the priest and the ark stand firmly on dry ground until all the people of Israel cross over. He is both author, the beginner, and the finisher of the crossing. He will finish what he started until all the people cross over. And brothers and sisters, God has promised us salvation, a salvation that could only come by his great power. And we're waiting for that salvation to be complete, to finish crossing the Jordan and to come into that promised land, the eternal rest. And at the moment, if you have come to faith in Christ, that moment that you first believe, it almost seems like he appears, it appears that he leads us to a dead end. Like, what, what, what are we going to do? We're coming to the end of ourselves. How are we going to cross this river? But God miraculously, miraculously parted the waters of our salvation and makes a way where there seems to be no other way and provides a path for us to walk on that is completely dry, but that will lead us to eternal life. And this morning, lest we think that Jesus has led us on this path, and maybe some of you are here. Look, I started this journey to follow Jesus. Sometimes I feel all alone, like I'm abandoned, that he'd left me. Be reminded that he has gone on before us, but he has not forgotten us, and he is standing firmly in the midst of the Jordan until all of his people cross the other side. Not one of his sheep will ever be lost. Many old hymns use the imagery that's found here in Joshua 3 of this crossing of the Jordan into the promised land, and they use it as the metaphor of the life of a Christian. One such hymn you may be familiar with, written by a blind author, blind Christian lady, Fanny Crosby. But here's the, here's the words of the chorus to her song, Near the Cross. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find, what? Rest beyond the river. See, God will be true to his promise to bring his people beyond the river. He is the author and the finisher. And of course, when we hear those words, you're probably thinking of Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our, of our faith. But, but I want to turn to one other passage in the book of Hebrews, although we, we could have spent some time there, that I think captures what we've been talking about in Joshua 3. So turn with me real briefly to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, it's page 1004. And if you've caught it along the way, there's been many references to the book of Hebrews in going through this series in Joshua. Because the author of Hebrews, well, he's telling the same story as Joshua. He's telling one big story, but there's references back to these events. In Hebrews chapter 6, Notice in verse, starting in verse 17, thinking, of, thinking about the background of Joshua here. So when God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise, the promise we've been talking about, eternal life, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as, an assure, as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's Hebrew saying? Look, we, have, we follow his lead into this life with God. Our refuge, as Hebrews says, and we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul, and we now look back to the cross to see that Jesus has entered the curtain as a forerunner, a leader on our behalf, ensuring that we will reach the other side. You see, as God stood in the midst of the Jordan, and it was a reminder to the people that these waters cannot collapse back on them because God's life and reputation are on the line. Christian, you are held safe until you pass over to the other side. But has your faith ever wavered? You're not alone. Do you remember the disciples in a storm with Jesus sleeping on a boat? And they said, we're going to perish. We're here all alone. What we are given is that God is true and he will lead us to the eternal shore. And it's by grace and grace alone. In fact, what, what's the, the, the hymn, Amazing Grace? Tis grace has brought me safe thus far to this moment. And what will lead me home? It was grace that will lead me home. The God of all the earth shows grace to his people and will faithfully lead them to the land he has promised. Can I ask, is this the God that you're confident in this morning? Is this the God that you're rejoicing in day after day? He's the same for his people today as he was then. But it's even greater because our eternal leader, Jesus, has come and God's promise to us is secure and it will be our reality because Jesus has completed the work. He is our sovereign God, our gracious God, our holy God, our shepherd God, and our true God who is with us until the end of the journey. Mm -hmm.